0: Off
1: the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not the scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. Hey there, and welcome back to the Off the Bench podcast. I'm one of your main three hosts, Sophia Chandrasakar, and I want to thank you... For tuning in to, to today's awesome episode on zoonotic diseases. Our speakers today are Jasmine Ponte of Monterey County, California, and Dr. Tracy Goldstein of One Health Institute of University of California, Davis. This episode was produced by Jasmine Ponte in the Leadership Academy Class of 2020. Now before we get started, some housekeeping. We published today's episode a bit early as the last Friday of this month will be Christmas Day. This episode is also available for PACE credit. So to obtain CE credit for this episode, please go to ASCLS.org off the bench to find out further instructions on how to redeem your PACE credit. Now onto the show. My name is Jasmine Ponte, clinical laboratory scientist and point of care coordinator for Monterey County, California. Today, our speaker is Dr. Tracy Goldstein, and Associate Director at the One Health Institute, University of California, Davis. She oversees the One Health Institute Laboratory and developed the Marine Ecosystem Health Diagnostic and Surveillance Laboratory in 2007. Dr. Goldstein is Co-Principal Investigator on the USAID-funded PREDICT project and leads the the pathogen detection and laboratory capacity building objectives for the project. She is a member of the NOAA Fisheries Working Group, on Marine Mammal Unusual Mortality Events, and continues to study diseases in marine mammals and other wildlife populations. She earned her Bachelor's of Science in Aquatic Biology at UC Santa Barbara, and her PhD in Comparative Pathology at UC Davis. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: The topic for discussion today is understanding emerging zoonotic diseases on a global scale. Let's first talk about your project. So the PREDICT project, your role, your team's role in reducing emerging zoonotic disease.
0: Yeah, so the project has been going for about 10 years now. And as you said, it's funded by um, USAID. And the idea came from um, multiple um, ov- um So sequential avian influenza outbreaks and USAID recognizing that there'd been much investment in human surveillance and domestic animal surveillance, but in fact, many of these diseases were actually coming from wildlife. And so the idea behind the PREDICT project was to bring wildlife into the surveillance system. And so we've been working in about 30 countries in Africa and in Asia, and we've been going out into communities where we think um, there are high risk activities occurring where animals and people are in close contact that may allow for spillover of viruses from animals to people. And we've been sampling the the people, um, their animals, and the wildlife that live around them, and also trying to understand the types of behaviors that the people are doing to bring them into contact with the animals so that once we find viruses, we can understand how contact's occurring and start to think about how we can intervene and put in mitigation to prevent spillover from occurring.
1: So intervening in those countries, is that related to the One Health approach? Yeah, in general,
0: everything we do is through the One Health approach. You know, I think this outbreak that we're undergoing right now is just sort of really highlighting the fact that what happens in animals and in people and in the environment is just interconnected, and it's really hard to separate those things out. And so the One Health approach is really sort of an idea of working in ways where all sectors are involved to um, to uh, deal with complex problems. So as I mentioned to you, when we go out into the field, we go into these communities to try to understand the way um, people are living, how they're interacting with the environment and with animals. And then we sample them in a One Health way, where we're not only sampling the people, but also the animals, and then understanding um, what's happening in the environment. So we do this in, in teams that include medical doctors, veterinarians, um, and wildlife biologists, among others. So it's a One Health team dealing with a One Health problem in communities. And the way we do our sampling is very similar, regardless of if it's an animal or if it's a person. And the way we do our testing is also the same. That way we get comparative information um, from all different countries, from different species, and from different sample types. Um, And I think that, um, you know, the one thing I was going to say was, the viruses themselves are always changing and, and you know, in order for them to cause any type of human disease, need to have the ability or the machinery to infect people. But it's more than just that. Um, the viruses have to have that. But the timing of shedding in the animals and the contact between the animals and people, all of those things need to align in order for a spillover to occur. So the good news is that all of those things need to align in order for a spillover to occur, otherwise they might occur more often. Um, But the the thing that's really the most difficult, and, and I think the thing that's really driving these spillovers, is human behavior. We're the ones who are really changing our behavior. We're cutting down forests, we're going into wildlife areas, we're you know, developing wildlife markets that have mixed species. So our behavior is a thing that's really changing. And our behavior is a thing that we have to figure out how to help to mitigate so we can stop spillover from occurring.
1: Well, that's really interesting. It's like finding the perfect recipe or the perfect storm, but we're kind of driving it more as we go into different regions in the country and, you know, doing humans, human stuff
0: yeah exactly the behaviors are really different in all the places that you go to and so it's understanding those behaviors is really important for for our ability to then help to mitigate them
1: that's really interesting um i was that's brings up a question of methods in the past with emerging zoonot diseases or viruses uh what were the methods before like in past history when we had previous outbreaks such as um was the one that, I can't remember the name, measles, I believe that was back in. Yeah, well, there's been, as you
0: probably know, a relatively ongoing measles outbreak for the last few years. um, And that's been affecting various parts of the world, in part because of um, people not doing um, or using the vaccine, right? So when you have a decrease in herd immunity, then you have more susceptible people and that can lead to outbreaks. I think that's the measles situation, perhaps that you're referring to. But, you know, I think different studies have different focuses. Um, we, Our charge was to be able to detect known and new viruses um, because trying to understand the new ones might help to inform what's coming down in the future. And so we were trying to take a really, really broad approach. Um, we didn't want to, in general, use a lot of information that would sort of focus us down one road. So, for example... When we're in the field, um, if let's say we were looking for um, Ebola viruses, we weren't going to just sample fruit bats because much of the literature was maybe pointing towards fruit bats. But we wanted to sample all bats that we could find because we didn't want to have any preconceived notions of where we might find viruses. So our in the field, we're very broad. Um, we are targeting taxa, so rodents and bats and primates, not necessarily one or two species. So that's different than some other projects out there. Um, Additionally, when we were sampling, where most of us are biologists and veterinarians and conservationists, so for us it was really important to sample live animals um, rather than capture live animals and then then, um, sacrifice them and, and then collect tissues. And so that was important for us from a conservation standpoint, but also we were interested in if we were going to detect viruses, detect them in the sample types that might lead to transmission to people. So, what do I mean by that? Um, if rodents are chewing on your food, we wanted to be salam- um, sampling their saliva because saliva would be the way for them to, you know, potentially um, share a virus with a person. Or if bats are living in in your house, and we wanted to make sure that we sampled their urine or their feces because that's something that you know might fall onto Food or clothing or other um, surfaces. Um, so what we were doing is we were live capturing animals um, in in nets when they were bats or in traps if they were rodents, etc., and then collecting swabs of their uh, mouths and of their feces and of urine, and then testing those samples to look for viral shedding. So that means you know things that might be in secretions. So we were going sort of broad by species and then broad by the type of samples we were collecting. And then when we get into the lab, rather than just looking for, say, Ebola Zaire, we were looking for filoviruses, so the family of viruses that includes things like Ebola and Marburg. And so what that does is it allows us to detect Ebola and Marburg, but also to detect something new. And in our project, we were actually successful in detecting all three of those things. We detected Ebola Zaire. We detected Marburg virus, and we also detected a new Ebola virus called Bambalee virus. So we went very, very broadly, and we did that across viral families, coronaviruses, paramyxoviruses, filoviruses, etc., and also across countries and across taxa. So we could sort of cast a really, really wide net to try to understand what might be circulating in animals, and then try to look for what they might be sharing with people and then also the circumstances around how they were coming in contact with each other.
1: That is a really interesting approach in terms of um, surveillance. It's global, broader than focusing on something small, something defined or specific, like you said. And you get a lot of data and information. So my thoughts, like, what do you do with all that, which we'll discuss in a bit down the road. I have questions for that. So in terms of the global scale, this is a good switch on to um, your travels. So this project, uh, as you said, you work in 30 countries Mm -hmm. and you have this big web and community of um, scientists, veterinarians, Mm -hmm. people in the community, in the wildlife. So can you share with me a memory or an experience on your travels that kind of shifted your perspective of the world?
0: Yeah, there's probably been a couple. I think the most important thing about our project and, and one of the things hopefully that will last for a long time beyond, you know, the type of work that we're doing is the capacity building that we were doing um, out there. So, you know, in order to do this work, you need to be able to train the people to go in the field, to capture animals safely, to sample them safely and to transport the the samples safely from the field to the lab, um, to go to the labs, to train them, to Do these sorts of analyses and make sure that they can detect both known and new viruses important um, for their country and then work with them to interpret the data and then report it back to the, the country governments and other country partners and stakeholders so that, you know, they're sort of a part of the process from beginning to end. Because, you know, we want to make sure that we have the next generation's workforce prepared to detect these pandemics in their own countries without, you know, ideally help from from people from the outside world. You'd like those capacities in all those places. And so because of that, I've had this amazing opportunity to go to travel to almost all of the countries that we've worked in, meet the teams, meet their families eat in local restaurants with them um, and learn the local species and, and, and see some of the local villages. So, you know, when I go to Cambodia, I've, I go there about two or three times a year and um, I help to manage the projects there. So when I'm there, I'm not just at meetings and in the lab, but we actually go out into the communities and, and we sample um, the animals. We stay out there and um, put the nets, nets up early in the morning. Um, to capture the animals and sample them and then work late into the night um, to do our work. And, and one of the things that's really amazing is we get to actually stay in the village and often in villagers' homes. So it's just a way to just sort of really get a glimpse into how people live um, and how they live with their animals. And, and it's you know just a very, very different um, life than, than what we um, live here um, in the US. And, and so I think it just gives you a new perspective about you know, how people see the world um and and what they think is important you know interestingly we're also connected these days with our iPhones and computers and everything so they're hearing the same news that we hear here but they 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 see it in a very very different way so having those conversations sort of in the context of how they live their life was always just one of my favorite things when I was traveling meeting the people and eating the food
1: that is really awesome it yeah it definitely sets your mind or opens your mind about people and cultures and the world, really. So it's, that's a great opportunity. So let's segue to, I'm um, talking more about these emerging zoonotic diseases on a global scale. Let's define some key terms. Can you define the term host switching? So,
0: you know, people probably have different definitions of it, but the way we think about it is a, a virus's ability to... Um, either change to be able to infect a different host or its ability to um, broadly use receptors that multiple species use. So receptors are the way that viruses get into cells. It's a bit of like a lock and key. So the right shape has to fit into the right shape. So host switching is is sort of a term used to sort of talk about the way viruses can move between hosts.
1: And hosts can be from... uh bat species to bat species, or from wildlife to humans, it doesn't matter what the species is, it's any host.
0: Exactly, I should have been clear, rather than just host, but switching between hosts. Exactly, so within bats, maybe going from, um, say one kind of fruit bat to a different kind of fruit bat, or it could be a broader jump, You know, maybe going from a fruit bat to an insectivorous bat, or even broader from say a fruit bat to a primate, or a fruit bat to a person. And one of our thoughts is the the, the broader host range that um, a virus has, the more likely it might be to cause a pandemic or to spill over into people. Um, because, you know, um, if it's a very, very, if it has a really, really narrow niche, then it probably is only going to be able to infect one, one species. But if it's able to sort of go broadly between species, it potentially could be a more important virus in terms of um, causing disease down the road. So those are the, often the ones that we look at and we try to assess whether a virus, a new virus that we found has the ability to maybe be found in multiple species and, and how far apart are those species um, biologically to understand if it has the potential to be a pathogen in the future.
1: That's really interesting. So that could that be related to bats being able to fly From one place to another. They're very mobile.
0: Yeah, you know, we don't really understand um, what flying, the relationship between, you know, flying in a bat and its ability to um, carry many different viruses. Um, Bats, just like other species, have migration patterns. Some of them fly far distances and some of them don't. and, and I think we don't really understand that relationship yet. Um, some people do speculate that because they're flying mammals um, and they have warmer body temperatures, that maybe that has something to do with why they can carry more viruses. Um, there's been others that have speculated about some differences in their immune systems that allow them to carry the viruses but not get sick from them. But we don't really, at, at the moment, understand um the factors associated with why these bats are able to carry these viruses. What we what we are learning, though, is that where we find more viruses is often where we find more bats. And when we find more viral diversity, we also find more bat diversity. So we have found that, that link. But as to why it is that they, they're like that and have that ability, we just really don't know at the moment.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Speaking of bat diversity in comparison to viral diversity. So referring to your article global patterns in coronavirus diversity, um, the bat data that you gathered was only analyzed for, so we're talking about um, coronavirus positivity in comparison to the other data. So you had collections of um, samples from, I think rodents and non-human primates. But there wasn't much positivity compared to the bat data.
0: Yeah. So the the global coronavirus um, study that you're referring to, what we wanted to do was we wanted to understand. And at the, at the time, uh, we did not necessarily think our paper was going to be completely focused on you know bat coronaviruses. But in general, we were trying to understand what coronaviruses were circulating in animals. That was really the idea behind that. And um and and in part, this work had come. After sort of you know SARS emerged in 2002 2003, and after that there was really an increase in people's interest in trying to understand the viruses, the coronaviruses in bats, and then of course MERS in 2012. And so what we wanted to do was of course understand the diversity in bats, but not just bats and all of the taxa that we were sampling. And so we sampled over 19,000 animals, um, and a high proportion of those were bats. Um, and then when we found, we found um, in that initial study, a little over a hundred different coronaviruses. And interestingly, about 95 of them were found in bats and the, and the, the, the other remaining five were found in um, rodents and people and um, non-human primates. So we didn't necessarily expect that um, in the beginning. Um, And when we found, it's not that we didn't find viruses, for example, in rodents, we really did, but they were the sort of the same four or five coronaviruses that have been found in rodents. So we found them in high numbers, but not in a high diversity. Um, And then in people, we found uh, many of the ones that we were expecting to, the ones that circulate every year that cause the common cold. And we indeed did find those in the people. So the reason we then focused um, on the bat data was, first of all, there was so much of it. There was so many positives compared to the other species and so many viruses compared to the other species. So we really wanted to dive in and try to understand a little bit more about what was driving that positivity and, you know, were there differences in different parts of the world and were there certain bats that were more likely to carry certain viruses, you know, so that was really the idea behind that. Was to really try to dive in and understand this relationship between bats and these coronaviruses.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. So that kind of brings me to the question of, um, so when you sample uh, oh, thousands of samples in the over thirty, what twenty countries or you said thirty countries, um, what are the variables that you need to define? So you mentioned. Um, before earlier in our conversation, the sample type, the viral host, viral host meaning was um, it's bats or non-human primates or rodents, there's a lot of uh, variables here. Even how, mi- how much sample do you need like to get um, the appropriate data? Um, yeah, and even all- thinking about re- the region and where do you collect those samples?
0: Yeah, all really good questions. So um, the way the PREDICT project works is we're a global consortium Um, It's led by UC Davis, um, and then we have global partners here in the U.S. um, So EcoHealth Alliance, uh, Wildlife Conservation Society, Smithsonian Institution, and Metabiota, now renamed actually as Labyrinth. Um, And then we all have teams on the ground in all of the countries, and it's the teams on the ground that um, are from the countries, they are well-connected, they know the countries well, they know the species, and they most importantly know... Where, we, where the high-risk, what we call high-risk interfaces are. These are the places out um, in the country where animals and people are coming in in close contact. So we use the knowledge from the teams on the ground to figure out where we should go work. So examples of places we work are in Cambodia. Um, one of the um, sort of pretty big industries that seems to continue to grow is guano farming. So guano is... is um, bat feces and it's used as fertilizer and um, in um, along the Mekong River, the, the farmers there have um, constructed artificial roosts made out of palm leaves and this um, brings millions of bats to, to, to live in those roosts and then underneath below those are mats and they collect the guano. It's also right around, you know, it's their farms right around their houses so they're farming their animals and they're farming their crops and they're living there and they're raising their children there. So there's a lot of mixing that's all happening right in, in this place with these bats. And then once a month or so, um, drivers come and, and then everybody um, helps to um, shovel the bat guano into big um, sacks. And those sacks then go all around Southeast Asia and use this fertilizer for crops. And so we work in places like that where we think that there's a lot of contact between animals and people. Um, and and we think that there's opportunity for bio sharing, so that's sort of how we figure out where to go work. And then, as I said to you before, we don't we're not targeting any one species. We basically want to sample everything that's there, and then we're also wanting to sample live animals. So we put out traps, um, nets, or or. Um, um, Rodent traps, you know, like little cages to catch animals. And then we sample them. We pretty much collect the same samples um, from every animal. Um, and those are, um, you know, oral swabs, rectal swabs, urine if we can, and blood if we can. And then all of those are tested. So sort of the, we try to take out the variables um, in terms of that. The things that we often cannot control is how many different species we sample or, or just capture. And how many of each of those species did we capture? And those are the things that become important um, in the the analysis side. Um, The other thing we try to do is um, go to these places in the dry season and in the wet season, and also over multiple years, because maybe things change. Maybe you know we talk about the influenza season when when it's cold and rainy. So we don't know if there's differences in what's circulating in the dry season versus the wet season. And as long as you know when you collected your samples, you can you know sort of deal with that on the analysis side um, later on. So when it came to the analysis. Um, the things that we were trying to look at were, first of all, you know, what viruses were did we find? How many different viruses did we find? And in what species did we find them in? Um, then we wanted to know, you know, who was positive and at what times? Because trying to understand, you know, the, the who was positive um, is important to then try to understand, are there patterns? You know, are they more positive in the dry season versus the wet season? Are certain sample types more positive than other sample types? And um, Are they are, you know, maybe certain age classes, maybe young animals are more likely to be positive than than older animals. All those things are important for trying to understand where the risk is, when the risk is, and then also to um, then design other surveillance projects to try to drill in to some of these questions further.
1: Does that answer your question? Yes, it definitely does. That was very good. Um, So going on to that, talking about the sample collection. So we can segue into the analysis part. So once you collect all your samples in whatever interface or region you are in, do these samples get sent to a lab in that region or country, or is it shipped to another laboratory?
0: In general, our goal is for for each sample to be tested in each country. The idea there is we want to build the capacity for the countries to be able to detect these viruses um and so that that sort of happened on the continuum there were some labs that immediately were able to with just a bit of training be able to do that testing other labs that maybe didn't have the facilities or the training so sometimes we did regional trainings for example so our lab team from Laos went to cambodia and got some training there uh, sometimes lab staff um, would come to our lab here at uc davis and also our lab team often went and did trainings in Tanzania and in Rwanda and Nepal and Sierra Leone and Guinea and other places. So training happening in all in all possible ways, um, building both regional and country capacity is really the goal. And I think that's one of the biggest successes out of the project is so there's now this network of people um, around the globe that know each other and in fact call on each other and, and get help from each other. So I think that was really great. Um, we do... Um, sometimes ship samples to the U.S. Um, and with that and we do that in, in various ways. Um, sometimes initial screening is done in country and then we support here by doing the sequencing to confirm the results. Other times um, the extraction is done in country and then we receive the extracted products and we do the testing here and then other times we, re- we, we receive all of the samples here and done, you know, testing all the way through the end. So. Um, it really depends on um, where the lab is and their ability to to take over the tra- the testing. And then, of course, training always happens um, side by side as much as possible, so that eventually it shifts from less work being done at Davis to more be- more work being done in the country.
1: That's interesting. So the, since you have a standard training for all the laboratories around the country around the world, you must have to use the same molecular method. Can you explain um, the processing of that when you get the samples, processing them for um, testing of the virus identification?
0: Yeah, we, you know, we're working often in sort of um, resource limited countries, far away places where sometimes it's difficult um, to sh- to ship reagents, especially things that need to be frozen and stuff like that. So we wanted to take sort of an approach that. Um, could be done in almost any lab. Um, and as I mentioned in the very beginning, we had this charge that we needed to be able to detect both known and new viruses. So what that meant was we needed to use a platform that was kind of broad. Um, so we used something called consensus PCR or viral family PCR, where rather than targeting something very specific, so rather than testing for just Ebola's a year, we were looking for filoviruses. And um, so, what that allowed us to do was um, to say set protocols to all of the labs that could be used consistently, and we also um, tried to use reagents that were relatively easy to purchase in most countries around the world. So, using you know products that many of the big companies um, make and and can easily ship to you know places like Africa and Asia. So, we tried as much as possible to standardize the extraction methods the methods to set up you know using pcr the methods to make cdna etc and we gave um those protocol books to all of the labs as well as use them for training so that was how we tried as much as possible uh, to make things be um, consistent across countries and labs um we also had to develop synthetic controls um as you of, I'm sure, where it's difficult to send um, infectious diseases across borders. And we were wanting to, for example, detect things like Ebola virus. So you don't want to ship those easily across borders. And so we made something called a, a synthetic control. We sort of called it the universal control. And that's a, it's a plasmid essentially. And we put the, the primer sequences in the plasmid of all the different assays. And then you can make, you know, you can just grow that up in bacteria. You can make a lot of that and it's not infectious, and then we could ship that out to labs around the world. And so they were able to use consistent controls with the PCR assays so that they at least had a positive control to know if an assay was or was not working. So those were the ways that we got around um, trying to get protocols and training and consistency in all of the labs um, in all the different countries.
1: Wow, that sounds really, or it sounds like it's a successful idea, having the universal... Plasmids sent to all the laboratories so that you guys all use the same um, information or genetic information.
0: Yeah, I think it was successful. I think it definitely got us around one problem. It created another problem. Any of you who've worked with plasmids and positive controls in your labs, which I know you guys all have, also know that sometimes you get contamination of a positive control, and um, certainly plasmids are notorious for that. So. Um, I think that, you know, a part of that was just really, really strict training um, for our lab teams um, in terms of how to handle controls and best practices for, you know, pipetters that should be dedicated just for controls and many of the things that I think we already do in our labs, but that maybe don't, you know, come inherently to to people in, in some places. And so we spent a lot of time, you know, working on procedures and troubleshooting Contamination and and other problems, but I hope in the end that it makes them sort of all more laboratory, better laboratorians, and better abilities to sort of critically look and interpret um, data, which I think is another big part of of the training is is being able to look at the results and determine, you know, are these good results or they bad results they need to be repeated you know what what's going on here so um, it was not something we anticipated but it turned out to be a good learning lesson for everybody
1: that is always true when you work in the laboratory you just come across things that you don't expect and then got to figure out how to deal with it and that's one contamination i can re- i can definitely relate to that <laughs> so yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you have to do your quality right make sure your results are accurate so what comes after that what um, involving the interpretation of the data once you've done the quality? Yeah,
0: so there were sort of two sides to that. The first is the sequence side, and then the second is the the epidemiologic side. So I'll start with the epidemiologic side first. Um, we wanted to look at um, the association of certain factors with a bat being positive. So we looked at things like, you know, which sample type did we find the most coronaviruses? And in fact, we found them in bats, most commonly in bat feces, and um, we did find them in oral swabs. But that's important because you can think about how bat viruses might then come in contact with people. Um, the other interesting part was season. Many of the coronaviruses that we found were detected in the dry season versus the wet season. That's important because you want to then be able to think about if you were going to go out and target your sampling. you know, what, what time of year might you want to go out and do that? Um, and then age, we found that many of the sub-adults or, or juvenile bats were more likely to be positive than the adult animals. And that, you know, is a little bit what we know from some other viruses as well in that young animals, um, after you know, after they are born, are at, at a certain time when they start to sort of move around and fly around a lot, come in contact with other animals, and that's when they are often shedding viruses. So again, if you're wanting to think about you know, what time of year to try to target when you might detect viruses, understanding a little bit about the bat biology and when they have their babies is a good time to think about when you might um, sample um, animals. And then the third thing we found with third, I don't know, I've lost track of how many numbers now, another thing we found, there we go. <laughs> um, well, that if we sampled less than 200 animals, we actually did not detect coronaviruses. Um, And so we had a sample more than 200 animals in order for us to start to detect viruses. And that's really important for thinking about designing a study and how many animals you're going to target in order to get meaningful data. Um, On the virus side, looking at these bat viruses, we really, when we made a phylogenetic tree, and that's a way to look at the relationship of all the different sequences that you find, we really found that these coronaviruses were across the entire Coronavirus tree. So, for those of you who aren't as familiar, I think now we are all learning, right? Mm-hmm. SARS coronaviruses are, are are in the in the B, um, the beta or the beta coronavirus group, but there are different coronaviruses, as alpha coronaviruses, beta coronaviruses, etc. But we found these bat sequences throughout the tree, even in in groups that previously we thought were the rodent clade, or groups that previously thought were the avian clade. So this sort of suggested that perhaps bats are the evolutionary origin. For coronaviruses, meaning, so they're the sources of some of these original viruses. And and that's, other people have sort of hinted towards that in that there there's a virus called OC43 that affects people, but it was known to have circulated in, in um, cattle. Well, we've since found those sort of viruses in, in bats. PEDV, which is a porcine or a pig virus, we've, found origins of that in bats, and so it seems like bats are maybe the evolutionary origin of coronaviruses, and different different animals are different for other things. So for example, loss of fever, um, rodents are, are, are the origin for that, so different viral families behave differently. So that was the first thing we learned. The second thing we found was that there were different bat families that were significantly associated with different groups of viruses. So why is that important? Well, we found that there are certain bat families that seem to be more likely to carry SARS-related coronaviruses. Well, that's obviously really important in our current outbreak, right? Because if we're wanting to see which potential species might be the reservoir of, of the SARS coronavirus too that's causing this current COVID-19 outbreak, we can use our data to go figure out which animals to go and target for sampling so we can look for certain reservoirs. We also found similarly for, say, the MERS-related coronaviruses that different bat family were associated with that. So again, that can help to target your surveillance if you're wanting to go and look for MERS-related coronaviruses. And so that's the type of ways that we can use the data that we're finding for our study so that we can better refine our surveillance, better refine our questions, and better improve surveillance to go and find where these viruses are and ultimately hope to improve public health.
1: Ah, so that makes total sense. So starting from a broader scale in this project and then now you can, after all the data that you've collected, now you can hone in and focus in the places that you would likely find the virus. Do you think this may introduce some biases?
0: Well, you know, certainly we can't, we couldn't be everywhere all the time and we certainly couldn't um, sample all species everywhere. So I think inherently um, that you there are going to be biases with that. But I do think that if we, we do these broad scale surveillance projects and then we learn from them, that can help to refine um, future projects for specific questions so it really comes down to you know what is your question and, and what are you trying to understand and data like this can help you to, to focus those questions um you might want to stay broad as well you might want to do a combination of if you know sort of okay now we think we know um i'll give you an example so we found in in one of our broad um approaches we actually detected marburg virus in bats in sierra leone um and that was the furthest west that Marburg virus had ever been found. It was also the furthest west, by the way, that people looked for Marburg virus. So, um, so, you know, prior to that, people kept thinking, well, Marburg virus is a problem in Central and South Africa. And if there had been hemorrhagic disease in Sierra Leone, nobody would have thought to test for Marburg virus because nobody thought there was Marburg virus there. But our finding of Marburg virus there, of course, makes sense, right? We found it in the same bat species that it's found in other parts of the world and in caves, just like where these bats live in other parts of the world. So that type of study is really important for us to not just think, okay, well, we've only ever seen Marburg virus in Angola, so we should only think about Marburg virus in Angola. But no, we should be thinking about where are the hosts living, who who carries these viruses, where do they live? And from there, sort of recognize that those viruses are probably in those places as well. And so because of that, a finding such as that, you, know, you don't want to get so focused by only looking for one thing because then you'll miss the bigger picture. So now, you know, we went really broad. We found Marburg in Sierra Leone. We, we now have specific questions in Sierra Leone, such as, is it shit at certain times of the year? you know, based on what we know about Marburg virus in other places. So now that's a much more focused question. We're going to target that species in those caves. Probably now, rather than just going broadly, maybe twice a year or something, we would go maybe try to sample them monthly to try to figure out when is it that they're shedding the virus. So um, those projects are very, very different, right? One is broad surveillance to sort of understand what's circulating. And then the other is more targeted. I've got a question question specifically about this virus, and I want to understand it. And so both of those approaches are needed. Um, and so I think the broad scale and the focused ones should, should, should work in tandem for us to understand what's happening out there in animals.
1: Yes, I totally, I totally see that, that both approaches are very important. And like you said, um, depending on what kind of question you want answered. So a broad approach, are you trying to see what uh, viruses are out in this area, in this country, or you have an idea of the interfaces. So let's um, hone in and collect samples here, like you said, every month or once a year or um, so on. So speaking of that paper, uh, the isolation of Angola-like Marburg virus from Egyptian rosette bats from West Africa, which is a really interesting read about the inter- the bat caves. Um, so they presented evidence of the active Marburg virus circulating in the West African um, Egyptian rosette bats, and so they, after that finding, um, they public health I assume immediately took action using the One Health communications approach. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah,
0: you know, so in Sierra Leone, um, for better or for worse, we had, prior to that, found a new Ebola virus called Bomboli virus in Bats in Sierra Leone. And so we'd had um, a long relationship, and, and not necessarily me. I mean, I did go there and I was a part of it. But really, the teams on the ground had a really great relationship um, from the community and, and the village chiefs all the way up to, you know, to the national government. And that was really important for us to go and work in Sierra Leone after, especially after the Ebola virus outbreak, because people were just sort of um, had suffered a lot during the outbreak. Almost everybody there knew family members that had died um, or were affected during the outbreak. And so people were really, really sensitive. And so in order for us to go in and do the project that we were going to do, we needed to talk a lot um, in the communities to the village chiefs, the district and local governments, all the way up to the, the national governments. And, so we had been talking to them a lot. They were familiar with our project and they were familiar with our work. And so by the time we found the first Ebola virus, the Bombali virus, we'd had a fair amount of trust with the government and, and the villages. And we worked really, really closely with them about how to um, roll out this data to the community without inciting a lot of fear, especially at that time, the word Ebola still really incited a lot of fear because it was really shortly after um, the outbreak. So, because of that, we'd work through a lot of these issues with, you know, how to communicate and what works and what doesn't work and how to work with the communities. Um, and in the process of that, we also developed something that we call "Living Safely with Bats," which is sort of a community campaign and, and a book that we designed as, a, you know, within our consortium, so that we could go out to the That's so and funny. not only talk about um, the viruses that we found but also how to live safely with animals right how to protect themselves from the bats how to recognize signs of bats in their homes or eating their food etc but to not kill the bats because of course bats play a very very important role in the ecosystem so we sort of gone through that whole process with the bombali virus and so When we found Marburg um, we could just sort of reactivate all of those and it was it was much easier and we worked sort of even more closely with the government um, because they were sort of so familiar with us and our our team so we were actually very very lucky to be able to do that Um, and I think the work is not done you know um, we need to continue to work in the communities and with the public health systems and also with the labs to when they see hemorrhagic disease cases to not just think about loss of fever, which we know causes deaths in Sierra Leone, um, not just think about Ebola, but also think about Marburg virus. Um, And so we're working with public health systems. We also need to work with the labs to make sure that they can detect all of these viruses as well. Um, But I think it was a really huge success story with us working with the local teams, the government and the communities um, to get that information out there. And I really, I think, I mean, that success is hugely due to our teams on the ground, their knowledge of the communities, their their connections and their knowledge of the country.
1: That's amazing. So it's going tying back to that huge web, right? The whole global web that you have and your team have created in this project, which is really amazing. And along with the relationships you had with, the communities in these countries and the scientists, it's its just a really huge team collaborative effort. So that's pretty amazing. So from here, just asking some unrelated questions, just to lighten up the mood a little bit here. Um, based on your travel experiences, work-related or not, what other encounter or experience have that has impacted your life personally? like Besides what you mentioned in the earlier, part of the podcast? Was there something, a memory or something that a person gave to you?
0: Yeah, I've been given, I've been so fortunate. I've been given so many gifts um, from my team. I think the generosity of people, honestly. Um, you know, I, I was doing all of this work, um, a because I thought it was so important, and I was so pleased um, to be able to help people, and and, and it was my job. Um, and the amazing generosity back, you know, the gifts that every time I see any of um, any of our teams that they always are bringing me to thank me, and I'm like, thank me. I don't know I was just doing <laughs> my job, but um, you know, from calendars to scarves to honey to. Um, Water bottles. I mean, they just always think of me and I'm always so moved by that. You know, I'll be flying around to go somewhere for a meeting and somebody will show up and they'll bring me a gift because they remembered they were going to see me and they wanted to do that. And so I just think the the amazing generosity is is the thing that I'll always remember. And, um, you know, being invited into their homes and meeting their family and having dinner with them, you know, I think it's those personal things that um, are so important. And that's what, you know, builds um, a community. So I, I think that's probably the thing that um, is really going to stay with me. And then the fact that maybe, I don't know, I like to believe on some days and maybe <laughs> I did something that could maybe change the world, you know, I helped somebody be able to detect this virus before there was a test or yes. a sequence available. And those are the things that are so intangible. Definitely. Right. And yeah. so, um, yes, I think it's those things that, um, are the most important, and, you know, the data, the paper, all those things, are all of great, course, you yeah. know, whatever, we all need that in our lives, but it's the people I think that, um, that I'll always remember. Yeah,
1: Definitely those experiences with people is something that the little things it kind of hones you back into, you know, your roots and, um, just your appreciation for, you know, humanity and looking at the world in a different way, you know, so that's really cool. And one more question. So speaking of the little things with how our lives have changed recently, what do you do now to stay together or stay sane? I know you're very busy with, um, everything that you have going on with the project especially with the situation now?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, sheltering in place has been obviously a really important thing. I think, especially in California, I think it's one of the reasons why um, we um, maybe haven't seen some of the, the rising cases like in other parts of the country. Um, and and I feel like um, staying home and doing that is such an important thing to do for our community and, and for um, our the people we care about. Um as we know, that can also drive us a little bit nuts, Um, you know, get up and you take a shower and you sit down at your table and then you just work for however many hours. Um, So I think for me, the important thing is making sure that I get outside, um, get some exercise um, that helps to keep sanity, obviously doing that in a a safe social distancing way. Um, But I think things like that are um, really important. You kind of got to get out and Get some fresh air, you know, and um, that helps to put things back in perspective. You remember that there's a world outside of your house, and that it's good to remember that it exists. Um, so I would say that's that's for, for me getting outside and um, getting perspective. The other interesting thing um, is that I think all of us in in our communities are reaching out to people to make sure that they're doing okay. You know, people that I would take for granted that I would see them out walking their dogs, I'm now actually checking in with them. You know, texting them or going by the house, making sure that they're okay. And so I think that's the other thing is that hopefully we're remembering that we are a part of a community because sometimes when we're so busy, we just do our little lives and we forget to actually talk to each other. So I think that um, there are, you know, while this pandemic is really hard and many of us have lost um, family members and friends, um, I think there are hopefully some good things that hopefully can come out of this. And that is in part remembering that we're a community and that we want to care about each other and, and take care of each other.
1: Yes, very true. Not forgetting the network we have here at home. Um, I can totally relate to, I mean, I still I still work, thank goodness, but um, it is different being home more than before and just kind of slowing things down and still find that connection with people. So, yeah, that's a wrap for this episode of ASCLS Off the Bench. Tracy, it was truly an honor to chat with you, especially at this time in the world. I look forward to seeing how your project predict and other projects will progress in the near future.
0: It was so great to chat with you, Jasmine. As everybody on the call may not know, we used to work together. So it was just (laughs) a great opportunity to get to reconnect with you and, and chat with you. So, so thank you for inviting me.
1: Thank you. And to our listeners, we'd love to hear from you. Check out the ASCLS Facebook page to join the discussion until next time. Bye.